What would happen if you had the ability to take all the characteristics that make you you, all the different aspects of who you are, the sometimes opposite and conflicting parts of your being, and split them up into separate individual people? That's the thought that Robert Louis Stevenson was digging into when he wrote the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And in the story, Dr. Jekyll concocted a formula that when he took it, when he drank it, he was able to split himself in half, that there was another person that was born out of him, this Mr. Hyde that embodied all of his negative, uninhibited qualities. And a lot of times when we talk about this story, we make reference to people who act different in different circumstances. We'll say, oh, well, he's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Or she can be a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in certain situations. And we use it to describe people who can be maybe two-faced a lot. But that's not what was happening in the case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was talking about something deeper. And in his notes in the story, Dr. Jekyll makes this observation. It says, with every day, from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus steadily draw near to the truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck, that man is not truly one, but truly two. And there's a lot of psychological and psychiatric things that could be talked about from that perspective. And I don't think this was the angle that Robert Louis Stevenson was going when he penned those words. But when I look at that, I see something theological. I see something biblical. I see something distinctly Christian. In Galatians 5, so far, Paul has been telling us what freedom is. Paul has been helping us understand what Christian liberty is all about. And he's told us that the freedom that we have in Christ is a free gift. That Jesus offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice to do for us what we could not do on our own. That we owed a debt and Jesus paid that debt in full on our behalf. And because of that, this freedom that Jesus gives us is a precious gift that we should cling to, that we should hold tightly, that we should be thankful for. And that we should also give away. He told us that we should take our freedom and use it as an opportunity to love and serve those around us. But as we pursue this freedom, as a Christian grows closer and closer to Christ, we find out that this is a pretty difficult thing to do. And that difficulty that we experience reveals a deep truth about who we are. It reminds us, much like Dr. Jekyll said in his notes, that we are in conflict. That in every Christian, in every life, there is a state of tension and conflict that takes place within ourselves. And it's something that can feel overwhelming. It's something that can often feel very defeating. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so today we're going to continue in Galatians 5, and we're going to see how we, as followers of Jesus, if you're here and you've put your faith in Christ, how do we weather this conflict? How do we weather this inner struggle of the two factions fighting within us so that we can use our freedom well? And that when we do, when we use our freedom well, we'll see that the victory is absolutely worth the battle. So Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16 through 18 says this. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation and the gift of freedom. But you know even better than we do that just because we're saved doesn't mean that we're perfect. And that there's something inside of us, something deep down within that fights us constantly, trying to pull us back into slavery, trying to pull us back into sin, trying to pull us back into ourselves as we try to run after you. So Father, teach us how to win the battle for our freedom. Teach us how to walk in the Spirit and not pursue the flesh so that we can love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and so that we can use our freedom well by loving and serving those around us, by loving our neighbors as ourselves. So speak to us this morning. May all that's done and all that's said be honoring and glorifying to you and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we need to look at as we're talking about battling for our freedom is that to use our freedom well, we must walk in the Spirit. To use our freedom well, we have to walk in the Spirit. One of the most beautiful pictures of God that helps us understand who He is comes early on in the book of Matthew when Jesus is baptized. And at Jesus' baptism, after he breaks out of the water, we see this amazing picture where the voice of God echoes through the clouds as the Holy Spirit of God descends on Jesus. And God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And in one passage there, we see the fullness of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in one moment. And then immediately after that, in Matthew chapter 4, It says, Jesus came up out of the water, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark words this a little different. Mark says that after his baptism, that Jesus was driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's a much more, almost violent language that Mark uses to describe Jesus going out into the wilderness. And this wilderness area that Jesus was going to is not a nice place. The wilderness was the kind of place that you would add miles to your journey to walk around it so that you didn't have to go through it. And Jesus wasn't going out into the wilderness for a vacation, but he was going out into the wilderness with the explicit purpose to fast and to be tempted by the devil. And so Jesus was led by the Spirit of God out into a really difficult circumstance. And we learn a lot in that passage about who Jesus is. Because we see Jesus at this one moment, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the one that Paul says was before everything, that he created all things and all things were created through him and by him and for him, that Jesus was now fully and completely human to the point where every move he made, if he wanted to do it well, he had to do it following the Spirit and the leading of God. And so we see something about the nature of Christ. But when we look at Jesus' humanity, we also are reminded that he is laying for us a foundation, an example that we are called to follow as children of God. Paul learned from Jesus. And so Paul understood the importance of being led 
by the Spirit of God in everything that he did and in everywhere that he went. And last week we looked at verse 13 and 14 when Paul was talking about using this freedom well. And he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, that's good. I really enjoyed preaching on that last week. That's a good passage to preach on when we can stand up and say, I'm going to take the freedom that Jesus died to give me and I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to give it up for somebody else because that's the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourselves. And what better way to do that is to take this gift that God has given us and lay it down on behalf of somebody else. Man, that's a, that'll preach all by itself. That's a good passage of Scripture. That's something that should excite us and empower us because we get to love other people as Jesus loves us. And that's really good in theory. But when it comes to practicing that out, it's really hard because people are terrible. People are awful. And loving and serving people means sometimes that we have to love and serve awful people. And sometimes I'm an awful person. And that means if somebody's going to love and serve me, then I'm probably not going to be the kind of person that deserves love and service. And so it's easy to talk about loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's easy to talk about taking this beautiful freedom that Jesus gave us through the cross and saying, you know what, I'm going to lay it down for your sake. It's another thing to do that when we know that we have to do that sometimes for people who don't like us, for people who won't do the same thing in return, and sometimes for people who we will offer our freedom and offer our love, and they will turn around and in response give us hatred and anger. Paul knew this. Paul laid his freedom down for other people. And what happened? Paul was arrested. Paul was threatened to have his life taken several times. People tried to throw rocks at Paul. And Paul ended his life in a Roman prison and was killed for his faith because he wanted to serve other people with the freedom that Christ had given. And he was proclaiming the gospel everywhere that he went. There will be times in your life when you try to go and love and serve other people and it won't go well. And that happens inside the church and outside. I've seen so many times when people in the church love someone and care for somebody and that person in return turns their back on them and walks away or even sometimes worse treats them poorly or doesn't even acknowledge it at all. And so to be willing to be that level of vulnerable, to take a good gift that God has given us and lay it down for somebody else, it's a scary thing and it's a difficult thing. And so what do we do? Because it's a lot easier for me to use my freedom to gratify myself. Because I feel pretty certain that I'm not going to leave me. That I'm going to do my best not to treat myself bad. Because I need me. Without me, there's no me. This is getting really philosophical and weird. But just follow me on my little matrix trail here. I need me. And I like me most of the time. And so if I'm going to use my freedom in a safe way, I'm the best bet. Because it benefits me, and I know that I'm going to enjoy it. So what do we do? Well, Paul has a solution in verse 16 when he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
He draws a line in the sand. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And this is something that Jesus showed us clearly. Remember, the wilderness, not a good place. Not a place that you wanted to go and spend 40 days and 40 nights, especially with no food. And being tempted by the devil is not an incredibly enticing thing to sign up for. But Jesus followed the Spirit into the wilderness for that exact purpose. We see it again in his life before the cross. When Jesus is praying to God and his flesh is is not feeling what's about to happen because Jesus knows, Jesus understands that what he's about to endure through the trial and the mockery and the beating and then the cross is going to be painful, it's going to be horrible, it's going to be humiliating and it's going to kill him. And so in that moment of weakness, Jesus prays to God and he says, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, let it be so, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was willing to follow the Spirit wherever the Spirit led, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And now Paul is telling us here that when we walk by the Holy Spirit, our perspective starts to change. That the Holy Spirit helps us to zoom out and to see the big picture of what's taking place beyond our weaknesses and beyond our desires. Because when we think about doing hard things, all we can think about is the immediate circumstance. All we can think about is what it's going to cost me and how it's going to affect my life, how it may inconvenience my life, and how it may hurt me. But what the Holy Spirit does is that it helps us. He helps us to do what Jesus called Peter to do. To stop focusing on things that are temporary and start looking at the big picture, at the eternal picture, and what it means to follow Jesus as a lifelong and an eternity-long endeavor. When we walk by the Spirit, He begins to change the way that we see things so that we can use our freedom well. But again, Paul's freedom doesn't make sense. Last week we saw that Paul called us to use our freedom by serving others, and that doesn't seem to really click with what we expect out of freedom. Because I don't want to use my freedom to serve anybody. I've been free, so I don't have to serve anyone. It seems like following and serving are opposites to freedom. But Paul sees true freedom as going wherever the Spirit leads us, wherever the Spirit takes us to go. And this means to really be free, to really understand freedom, because we don't. Not from a Christ perspective, not from a Christian perspective. We don't understand what freedom means. And so to know what real freedom is, we have to learn what real freedom is. And to learn what real freedom is, we need to follow the one who knows what real freedom is. And we talked last week about how God, Jesus, is the only one who understands freedom because he's the only one that really has it. As the uncreated creator, as the God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into motion and everything into being, there is no one beyond him, there is no one better than him, there is no one stronger than him. God has complete and total freedom in a way that we could never understand it. And so to learn what freedom means, we have to follow the God who knows what freedom means. We have to become freedom apprentices. In an apprenticeship, the apprentice comes alongside the master. And he spends time with the master and he watches the master work. 
And then as time goes on, the apprentice gets to touch what's going on and gets to help the master until eventually the apprentice can come alongside the master and do the same work. And in the same way, we have to watch God and to see what freedom looks like, to follow the Spirit wherever He leads, and then find ourselves walking by the Spirit and wherever the Spirit leads us because we know that's where freedom is going to reside. By walking with the Spirit, we learn. We learn how to use our freedom, and we learn how to use our freedom well. We learn how to love freely and not count the cross. We learn how to serve freely. We learn how to be free. And as we're learning how to be free, we learn how to hate slavery. We've talked several weeks now how when we leave the freedom that Christ has set up for us in any direction, whether it's towards legalism, trying to add more laws to Christianity, or towards licentiousness, trying to abandon Christ at all, we always find ourselves back in slavery. Either slavery to the law or slavery to sin. And as we pursue Christ, we learn to hate that kind of slavery. Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the reason that's true is because the more that we walk by the Spirit, the more we see our slavery as it really is. The more we see the disgusting nature of our sin and the oppressive nature of the law because we see the beauty that comes and the freedom in Christ that we have. And so when you walk with the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh because the flesh is sickened by sin and slavery and the Spirit is the antidote for our spiritual sickness. The first step to winning the battle of freedom is choosing to walk and learn from the winning side. And so how do we do this? It's pretty simple. Because so often we're looking for a magic switch that we can flip and all of a sudden everything will go well. But Christianity is not about that. It's not a momentary thing where everything falls into place. Christianity is a grind. Christianity is a daily pursuit. And so walking by the Spirit means following after these spiritual disciplines that God has put into our lives. It means that we have to take time to pick up, as Paul calls it, the sword of the Spirit that's the Word of God. To spend time in scripture, to spend time learning about who God is and what he has done, to see the beauty of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's revealed himself and everything that we need that's beneficial to salvation right inside the pages of his word. And so we should immerse ourselves in God's word day after day after day. Walking by the spirit means a life of prayer, a life of communication with God. And the Holy Spirit has such an important aspect in our prayer lives that we don't know how to pray right without the Holy Spirit, but He is there for us. Scripture says that even when we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. That He will pray for us when we don't know how to pray. And so walking by the Spirit means a life constantly devoted to prayer. We have to worship. We have to come together week after week after week and sing these songs and make these confessions and hear God's word preached and read and spend time in God's word. But worship doesn't stop on Sundays. It means that our lives have to be focused around worship, that everything we do should be for God's glory. Whether we're eating or we're drinking, we do it all to the glory of God because that's what walking by the Spirit looks like. 
Because the Spirit in every moment is glorifying Himself, is glorifying God. And so if we're walking with the Spirit, that's what our lives are going to do as well. Living in community is an incredibly important part of walking in the Spirit. Because there are going to be people, especially when you come to church and you see people of different ages and backgrounds and ethnicities, there are people who have come from all different places who have been walking in the Spirit longer than you, some who have been walking in the Spirit a lot shorter period of time than you, and we learn from each other and we grow together and we encourage each other and even sometimes challenge each other to pursue Christ more and more. We also walk by the Spirit by practicing good works. It can be easy to read passages of Scripture like this when Paul talks about the law and being free from the law and thinking that that means that we're free from doing good. But Christians are called to good works. We're called to do good things in the world. We're called to be good and to do good, not as a means to earn our salvation or try to pay Jesus back, but as an act of worship. And so walking by the Spirit means that we go everywhere that we can and we look for ways to do good. That we fight against the sin in our lives and we look for ways to serve our neighbors, to love other people, to do good in the world, to stand for justice and all of these things. And this helps us to walk closer and closer to the Spirit. But we have to do it. We have to put it into work. We have to pray. We have to spend time in the Word. We have to worship. We have to be together in community. We have to do good things. We have to make the choice to daily walk in the Spirit. So to use our freedom well, we have to walk in the Spirit. And to use our freedom well, we have to be strong in the struggle. To use our freedom well, we have to be strong in the struggle. Let's go back in time for a moment. The year is 1904. It's a really important year because this is the year for the third iteration of the modern Olympics. The modern Olympics are new. They're brand new. And 1904 is going to be the third Olympics. It's a really important time. And they wanted to do the Olympics in Chicago. It's a nice big city. People could get to it easily. They wanted to have the Olympics in Chicago. The problem is... Chicago had another big world event taking place that year, the World's Fair. And the World's Fair had been around a little longer. The World's Fair Commission was a lot more powerful of an organization. And so they had Chicago, and they didn't want the Olympics there. So the 1904 Olympics started off at kind of a limp, and so they moved to St. Louis. But then, because the World's Fair didn't want any sort of competition, they decided that that year they were going to host the World Track and Field Championships the summer of 1904 in the United States in Chicago. And so almost no track and field athletes wanted to come to this new Olympics. They wanted to come to this World's Fair and put their displays on for the world. And so by the time the Olympics rolled around, only 12 countries showed up for the 1904 Olympics. About 90% of the people that were there Americans. It was a good year for us. We won something like 230 medals that year because there was just nobody else there to compete. And so we dominated. We started some American medal dominance in 1904 because there was just nobody else there. It was basically participation awards. But things kept getting weirder. In the marathon, it was 90 degrees the day they ran the marathon. Now, when you say the word marathon to me, I get tired. I get sleepy. And then by the time you get to the TH, I've quit. 
So if you're like, do you want to run a marathon? I'm out. I'm done. My marathon is over. I don't want to ever run a marathon with you. I don't know why anyone does. If that sentence ended with, do you want to run a marathon with me in 90 degree weather? Then you're done. We can't be friends anymore. If you ask me that question and I, I might hit you because that's an unfair thing to ask of me to ever think about me running in 90 degree weather for that period of time. I, it's just, you're basically saying that you want me dead. And so these marathon runners signed up for it because they're crazy. There were 32 people running. By the end of the marathon, 18 people had dropped out. The guy who won the marathon ran the marathon in a slower time than I believe all of the finishers of the next Olympics marathon. He wouldn't have finished first the next year, second, third. He would have been trotting in at dead last. And he was so tired and hurting so bad that he kept begging his team for water. And for some reason, because 1904, they kept telling him no and instead gave him raw eggs and a little sampling of strychnine to drink. It was a weird time. And out of all this, the most interesting thing about the 1904 Olympics to me is that one of the events that year in the track and field was tug of war, which to me sounds like a pretty awesome Olympic event. And I would absolutely pay to watch six people on each side of a rope just pull back and forth until they yank somebody in the mud. If that's not Olympics, I don't know what is. But that's, that was one of the main events there, and I think we won gold in that because, you know, we were just winning all the awards. But in tug-of-war, if you've never played before, you have two teams on each side of a rope and usually some sort of mud pit in the middle. And these two teams, the objective is to move the opposite direction and pull with such strength that you take the other team and you yank them either across a line or into a giant pit. And so when you see two evenly matched teams, usually there's some pulling this way and there's some pulling this way. And the rope is tight and there's tension and there's conflict. And then eventually, after work and after exerting so much energy and effort, somebody wins. In verse 17, Paul paints a picture of spiritual tug of war. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. When Paul says that if you follow the spirit, then you will leave behind or you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He says that because these two things are complete and total opposites from one another. It's a spiritual conflict. It's a spiritual tension where the two sides are battling and pulling us in totally, completely different directions. They're polar opposites. And I think we need to define some terms here because now Paul starts talking about this flesh and the spirit. And the reason we have this dichotomy, the reason we have this split, the reason we have this conflict in the life of a Christian is that salvation is a process. So often we think about salvation as a one-time event that changes everything. But salvation is a process that Jesus begins and Jesus will end. But that salvation event that we have in our lives, that conversion that we have, that regeneration in our lives is just the starting moment of salvation that lasts a lifetime of God making us into who we're supposed to be. And then after death, after Christ comes and makes all things new, then we experience the fullness of that salvation. And so because it's a process, there's things that are somewhat incomplete from day to day in our lives. 
Salvation, the initial act of salvation, is God taking something dead inside of us and making it alive. We're told in Scripture that we're dead in our sins and trespasses and that it's our spirit that's dead inside of us. And so when we put our faith in Christ and repent of our sins, what is taking place is this act of regeneration where our spirits become alive inside of us. And so our spirit is alive. It's following after Christ. It's following after Jesus. But there's still part of us that's dead. Paul calls that our flesh. And we have this promise that when salvation is finished, that when Jesus comes to make all things right and all things new, Paul says that if we die a death like Christ, we will be raised again in a resurrection like Christ, and our bodies will be made whole, our flesh will be made whole. But right now there's a conflict. There's two natures living inside of us, fighting over dominion in our lives. One pulling us towards Christ, the Spirit pulling us towards Christ, and the flesh pulling us towards ourselves and towards sin and towards slavery. And Paul describes this tug of war where he says, the desires of the flesh, they're over here and they're against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit, they're over here against the flesh and they are pulling you away. They are trying to keep you from doing what you want to do. That rope is tight and one is pulling you towards itself and the other is pulling you towards itself. And it can be very, very tense. These natures stand in total and complete opposition to one another. They repel each other. They repulse each other. And we find ourselves stuck in the middle of these two natures. And Paul says they're fighting to keep you from doing what you want. And so when you want to chase after the Spirit, when you want to walk this way, our flesh is behind us, grabbing us by the cuff of the shirt, pulling us back as hard as he can, trying to get us to follow the flesh. And then we turn around and follow the flesh because the Holy Spirit is a convictor who wants us to follow after Christ. The Holy Spirit grabs a hold of us and pulls us this way. And so no matter what we want to do, there's something fighting us. And that can be really, really frustrating. Since we're talking about tug of war, I remember in field day when I was a kid, there was this game where we would run and grab a bat and put our foreheads on it and spin around in circles and then try to run to a finish line. And I get dizzy really easy. And so that game for me was not the game the rest of the people were playing. For me, the game was spin around a bat, fall on the floor, and try not to cry and throw up because I get so very dizzy. And that's how I can feel spiritually when I'm trying to pursue Christ and something's pulling me this way. And then I try to pursue myself and the spirit pulls me this way. All of a sudden I find myself very spiritually dizzy. And I imagine that all of us have probably been in that situation. And so in the middle of this tension, in the middle of this back and forth, what are we going to do? Well, Paul says these things are, doing, are keeping you from doing the things you want to do. And verse 18 says... But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Which doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Here Paul's talking about this conflict between the flesh and the Spirit and pulling back and forth. And so you expect him to give us some kind of nice answer on this is how you walk with the Spirit. This is how you fight against the flesh. And all he says is, but you are not under the law if you're led by the Spirit. And that doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to be a good answer until... We remember what was going on in the Galatian church. The church in Galatia wasn't trying to use their freedom to live some sort of life of sinfulness. They were trying to use their freedom to follow the law. 
They were trying to use the law to find some sense of superiority in the Christian life, that if they followed both Christ and the Jewish law, then maybe they could be better Christians. And so Paul's saying for the Galatian church, you've got this fight of the law trying to pull you back into itself over here, and the Spirit is trying to pull you here, but you are not under the law because you're led by the Spirit. And so for those of us who are maybe seeking a different kind of slavery in our life, our flesh is pulling us in a different direction. Paul here is saying, you don't have to struggle this hard because you are not in captivity to your flesh, but you're led by the Spirit. You've been set free from the flesh so that you can pursue the Spirit of God, so that you can pursue Christ. Our view of spiritual warfare is so wonky and weird. Because a lot of times we picture it as this epic struggle where you have God on this side and he is equally good and powerful to something else on this side. And sometimes we put the devil in that picture, sometimes we put ourselves or sin. We can put all kinds of different things on this side of the table, but we think that this side of the table is somehow equal but opposite to God. Equal in strength, equal in power, equal in might, and they're just pulling back and forth on us. But that's not the way that spiritual warfare works. Because Christ is stronger than sin. Freedom is stronger than slavery. Grace is stronger than the law. This freedom that Christ gives us, there is nothing that can compete with it. The spirit is stronger than the flesh. This is not a balanced fight in our lives, but so often we try to make it that way to excuse the fact that we're not pursuing the spirit the way that we should. In this inward battle that we live day after day, we have to remember who is stronger. We have to remember what is better and pursue the Spirit with all of our energy. If you had a tug-of-war match, and if you've ever been a part of one, if they're pretty equal teams and there's a lot of pulling back and forth, if the stronger team pulls and then relaxes, that gives the weaker team a chance to regrip. It gives them another chance for breath. It gives them a chance to regain their strength and regain their footing. So even though they may be a little weaker, they are able to pull back as the stronger team relaxes. But if the stronger team pulls with all their force, with all their might, with all their strength, with no relenting, without giving up at all, eventually that weaker team begins to realize how weak they are. Their grip begins to loosen. Their feet begin to slip. The rope becomes hot in their hand, and the winning team starts to pull. We need to run towards the desires of the Spirit so hard and with so much ferocity that the flesh in our lives has no time to breathe, that the flesh has no time to rest, and it'll eventually start to lose its grip on our lives, not because of our strength, mind you, Because when I say that we need to be strong in the struggle, we can't be strong enough for the struggle, but we serve a God who is. And so as we run towards Christ, as we run towards the Spirit, the strength of God is the one who enables us to break the chain, to loosen the grip of the flesh in our lives. In the Christian life, the battle is absolutely a difficult battle to wage, especially when it comes to our freedom. The spiritual war that we deal with in our lives can feel very long, but we know that Christ has already won the victory, that the Spirit is already stronger, and there is no sweeter victory than life in the Spirit that gives us that freedom in Christ. Paul has told us that Jesus has called us to freedom. 
that for freedom Christ has set us free, that that's who we are designed to be as people set free by the grace and mercy of God. And that freedom begins at salvation. When Jesus calls us by the Holy Spirit to come into his grace, to come into his mercy, when we believe in Christ and repent of our sins, then the Bible says that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. That the old is past, that the new has come, that it is over, that we are free once and for all. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, then I I encourage you as I do week after week to come and talk with me immediately after our confession of faith about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation and to be free. For those here who have put your faith in Christ, who have gone through baptism, if you're free, each and every one of us still has something inside of us that wants to steal our freedom away. Every one of us has a flesh that is pulling us back towards selfishness, pulling us back towards sin, pulling us back towards legalism, pulling us back to whatever it is behind us that kept us in slavery and trying to keep us from running towards Christ. And for each and every one of us, it's time to make war against that in our lives to use our freedom, to walk by the Spirit, to learn what true freedom really means by pursuing Jesus daily. And as we desire the Spirit more and more, we'll see that tight grip of the flesh, the hold that it has on us, will start to be weakened so that we can take hold of that freedom and use it well to love Christ with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do what Paul has called us to do. The very difficult task of taking that freedom and laying it down so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves and love our brothers and sisters in Christ with a love that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone and so that we can go out into the world and love people whether they love us or not, whether we think they deserve it or not, to serve people whether we want to or not. That's the freedom that we have in Christ and we will be able to take hold of that as we walk by the Spirit day day after day after day.